Several weeks ago, I was planning for some lessons that dealt with some issues that I believe that not only we, but many other congregations are facing. If you would just look around the auditorium, most of us can remember people who were once faithful Christians, and they're no longer there. Many of those who were converted became Christians, and then it seems as if a short time later they fell away. Also during this period of time, I've been preparing for our Monday morning Bible class. And for those of you who were very astute observers this morning, notice that I had it put on the screen that we'll have Bible class tomorrow. Uh, that's not the second Monday. Next Monday will be the second Monday. So the Monday morning Bible class will not meet tomorrow, but will meet a week from tomorrow. During that class, we have been studying the book of Hebrews. And I'm going to ask you tonight, I'm not going to use a screen, I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles, and I want you to turn with me to chapter 3, and let's look at verses 12 and 13. I'm going to lay the groundwork for our study for the next four Sunday evenings, Lord willing. The writer of the book of Hebrews is deeply concerned that those who are presently Christians, walking with the Lord, can in fact fall from their faith. He said, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Beware. Beware, brethren. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you a heart of unbelief. Brethren, it's really serious that you and I can develop hearts of unbelief. As you go on with me through the book of Hebrews, if you come to chapter 5 and beginning with verse 11, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 11, the writer is now focusing on symptoms that exhibit themselves in people's lives who are at risk. He says, beginning with verse 11, he says, Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For when or though by reason of time you ought to be teachers, you have need that someone teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And have come to need milk and not solid food. For solid food belongs to those who are full age. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. You see a symptom that starts developing is people fail to grow. They fail to mature in the Lord. If you go into the first few verses of chapter 6. He says, we're not going to lay again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith toward God, the uh, baptisms, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And he says, this we will do if God permits. He said, we're going to grow. He has some, some enthusiasm there with, along with warning. But then he returns, notice we're in chapter 6 now, continuing on, beginning with verse 4. He says, for it is impossible... 
For those who were once enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain which often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. Here's what the Hebrew writer is saying. Here's his point. He warns them back in chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. He describes for them symptoms in verses 11 and following in chapter 5. He talks about in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 6, here's what happens. Here's the consequence of a person who doesn't grow. He is likely near to being rejected and being burned. Now, when you get to the text that Brother Philip read for us just a few moments ago, he says, but beloved, we are persuaded, we are confident, better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. You see, where I'm trying to lead you is when you and I think about these people who are leaving the Lord, who are departing from the faith, what is it that can be done, should be done, to help them to follow these things that accompany salvation? How is it that we can develop and mature and not leave the Lord? Well, that's what these lessons are going to be about. Tonight, I want to address the first of those lessons. And it's going to be looking at things that new Christians need. Things that new Christians need. And I'm going to do my very best to try to be as practical as possible while also emphasizing the biblical principles that are involved. The very first thing that they're going to need is compassionate, watchful care. Compassionate, watchful care. You know, if I were to use one word to describe new Christians, it's vulnerable. Vulnerable. And when you say vulnerable, what does that mean? That means that someone is at a heightened risk. Why are they at a heightened risk? In what areas are they a heightened risk? Well, let me look at a few of them with you from the Bible. The first one is erroneous or false teaching. If you go with me to the book of Romans, chapter 16, let's look at verses 17 and 18. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. When Paul is finishing his letter to the Romans, he offers for them a warning, something to beware of. He says, Now I urge you, brethren, notes what the New King James says, American Standard Original King James, mark those who are causing divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly 
and by their smooth words and deceiving speech, or speech to deceive, smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. Key on that word simple there. The word simple today might mean that a person is not very intelligent. But that's not what the original word means. That's not what the Bible word means. It means innocent. Like a child who would be vulnerable. Here's a man who comes up and says, you want me to give you a a piece of candy? Come get in the car with me and I'll give you this piece of candy. Why is that child vulnerable? Because he doesn't understand that there are evil-minded people out there. When it comes to false teaching, many people become members of the Lord's church and he doesn't realize there's some devious-minded people out there, people who are self-serving, people who will teach what they want to for whatever reason. He says by their smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the innocent, the simple. They prey upon them. Now turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14 and I think you'll see it. Very well presented by Paul to the Ephesians as well. Ephesians 4 verse 14. And notice the phraseology, the way he puts it. That we should no longer be children. Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. By the trickery of men and by the cunning and craftiness of deceitful plotting. He says we don't need to be like children who can just vacillate from one side to the other, from one position to the other. Here comes a man and he teaches it one way. And we say, yeah, that sounds right. Here comes another man he teaches it another way. And say, you know, that sounds right too. People who are young in the faith are vulnerable to those who would teach error. Let me give you a second area of their vulnerability. They're not only vulnerable to false teaching, they're vulnerable to the practices of people who are not living right. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles now to the book of Galatians, to chapter 2, we're going to begin our study at verse 10. Here's a real sad situation that's occurring here. Paul is at Antioch. And he is there along with Barnabas. And the church there is growing and progressing. If you remember Acts 11 verse 26, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. If you'll remember, that's where the Gentile church started. Can you imagine here is this congregation just getting going. There's prophets there. There's teachers there. The church is growing. It's getting Gentile converts, now notice with me what you find in verse 10. He says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before certain came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Now listen to the key in verse 13. And the rest of the Jews played the hypocrite with him. The rest of the Jews played the hypocrite with him. Here's a man who is supposed to be a leader in the church. He's an apostle. He does something wrong. Paul has to withstand him to the face because of it. What happened? 
When you have a man who does something wrong, a lot of times he can lead a lot of other people with him into that same sort of sins. Here you've got a new Christian. Are they vulnerable to watching the lives of other people and where they lead to follow? Most certainly they are. Let me give you a third area in which they are vulnerable. That's discouragement. Many of us look back on our lives and we can see our mistakes in bold-faced letters. You know, some people ask, do you ever go back and listen to your old sermons? I can't do that. I'd hate to know that I was judged by the sermons that I preached the first year out of school. I worked a whole year with the Antioch Church of Christ in Vernon, Alabama. Very patient group of people. Young preacher just starting out. And you know, I am certain I made a lot of mistakes. Still do. But you know, a lot of people when they start out, whether it's in their jobs or whether it's in their marriages or whether it is in any other avenue of life, they're going to make mistakes. And you can have somebody that you put before this congregation and you let them lead a song and they make a mistake and someone jumps on them like that and you know what happens? They just like, I guess I never was cut out to be a good song leader. I guess I never was good cut out to be in front of the public. And so they immediately are discouraged. Now let me give you some practical ideas, some things what I think are concrete with regards to this that can be helpful. Number one, because they're vulnerable, don't give new Christians material that's not written by faithful members of the church. You may be strong enough, you may may be mature enough to separate the wheat from the chaff. You may understand that when you read a man's writings that he may be correct on this point, but he may be incorrect on this point. But you give literature like that to a new Christian, they may not be able to see the difference. You may confuse them and really destroy their faith and confidence in God. To some degree, they need to be shielded from error, whether it is taught on from a pulpit or whether it's taught from a book or a tape or a podcast or whatever you... They need to be shielded because they're vulnerable. They need watchful care. Number two, to some degree, we all bear the responsibility to watch out for one another. You know, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, not looking each of you to his own things, but to the things of others. I've got to make sure that I'm looking out for you. Now, there are those whom God has charged specifically with this role, and that's the elders. When Paul met with the elders at Ephesus, from Ephesus at Miletus in Acts chapter 20, he said to them in verse 28, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to the flock over which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood, Now here's why in verse 29. For I know that after my departure, savage wolves will enter in among you, not sparing the flock. 
He said, you've got to understand there are going to be people who are going to be savagely going after the sheep. And you've got to protect them. They're vulnerable. In Matthew 7, verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Imagine, if you will, here's a young, new Christian and somebody comes in and they look like a sheep. Maybe they're good. But Jesus said they're not. Number three, never speak disparagingly of the Lord's church. You know, sometimes people don't realize the impact and influence. When you talk to young people and you talk about the bad of the church, you know what their impression of the church ends up becoming? Is everybody there is a hypocrite. The last thing that a new Christian needs is to see the flaws and imperfections of everybody that's there. And you can help them by not discouraging them. Be careful where you go. Be careful what you do. And be careful what you say. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, Paul says, Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Make sure that whatever you do, you think about how you're going to impact the lives of others. And number four, learn how to give positive correction. Learn how to, when you have to correct something, to not be negative about it, but to be positive. I want to tell you, we are blessed here to have a lot of young people. And these young people are going to make mistakes, but we need to be able to pat them on the back, let them know that we love them, that we're for them, and we're with them, so that they, during this period of their vulnerability, know that someone has got their back and cares about them. Second thing that new converts, new Christians need is food that they can digest. When you go to the Bible in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2, he says, As newborn babes desire the pure milk that you may grow thereby. The pure milk. When Paul wrote the Corinthians, he said to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he said, I fed you with milk and not with meat, for you were not able to bear it, and even now you're not able to bear it. He talked about feeding them with milk. At the beginning, that was a good idea. And again, in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 13, For everyone who partakes of milk is without skill in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. I want to key on two of those words, the word pure and the word milk. What is it for something to be pure? You know, I always have a frame of reference. Some of you may remember this, especially some of you younger may not. When I think about the word pure, I always think about Dove soap. They used to have a commercial that says 99 and something 100s. I think it's 33 100s, but I could be wrong about that. Pure soap. They're saying it doesn't have any additives in it. It's just soap. It's just pure soap. 
When you think about milk, our milk's fortified with vitamin D. They added something to it. There's a real concern now with some of the things that's being added to the foods and the drinks we consume. Things that are being processed. Processed sugars. Processed fats. And what's that doing to our bodies? Folks, have you ever thought about the additives that people give to the pure milk? These things that are being added to it? You see, when we're dealing with new Christians, we don't want to give them anything that's got any additives in it. Listen to Colossians 2 and verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and vain deceit according to the tradition of men and, not, and according to the principles of this world and not according to Christ. He's saying what's happening is, is people are adding a little this, they're adding a little that. What does that end up doing? Diluting the pure milk of God's Word. We need for new Christians to get them to read God's Word. Not necessarily what everybody tells you God's Word says. Somebody may get it right, somebody may get it wrong. We need to teach them to read God's Word. The second word that I want to key on is the word milk. Milk is the simplest of the foods to digest. It's not insignificant that God created woman, the mother, to be able to provide the food that a young newborn would need. And when you start thinking about young people and their obedience to the gospel, we need people who are going to feed them the very simple, easy-to-digest food. And here's some practical ideas that I would like to offer. One should be careful what new Christians are being fed and are they eating. Let's say, for instance, a newborn arrives into your family. We've announced several that have arrived over the past few weeks. What if that child were not eating? Didn't eat today, didn't eat tomorrow. You know what would happen? Pretty soon that child would get sick and die. What happens to new converts, to babes in Christ, if they're not eating? You know what's going to happen. Somewhere along the line, we've got to make sure that we're providing, putting before and creating the desire for that pure milk of God's Word. Number two, we need to be careful with the additives. Even with the best of intentions. Well, here, let me give you a workbook that tells you what the book of Hebrews means. Or you need to get your understanding from the pulpit or from the Bible class. Folks, we have to make sure that we de-emphasize the additives and we emphasize the pure milk. Number three, one must be aware of the need to teach on everyone's level. In the Bible, there are portions of it that are extremely simple. 
so simple that God took men who were fishermen, uneducated men, and had them to present these messages to people, and they understood. We don't need to try to make God's Word difficult. We don't need to take a new Christian and say, let me explain to you all of the intricacies of the Melchizedek priesthood as is found in Hebrews chapter 7. Somewhere along the line, they need to be able to grasp that. Or we don't need to begin and say, let me explain to you what the third crown means on the beast in the book of Revelation. They need basic Bible teaching. You say, what's that? Chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Faith toward God, repentance of sins, teaching the baptism, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. They need those basics. Number three, nurturing. What is nurturing and how does one do it? You know there's some great parents, and some of you are great parents, whether you realize it or not. Great parents create an environment where their children are able to learn, to grow, and develop. You as parents provide not only the environment, but the incentive to try to learn, to try to succeed, to try to grow. And for that reason, we have 11 folks' as photos on the board out there that shows that they're going to graduate from high school. You've done that academically. How do we as a church foster that same sort of environment spiritually. Folks, that's important. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Amen. Go, therefore, and make disciples. He didn't just say, go make new converts. He said, go make disciples. Let me tell you the philosophy that exists so much of the time. That we come and we have a gospel meeting. We have first principles preached. We get people to come forward. We hurry them into the baptistry. We baptize them. And folks, don't misunderstand me. I am all for baptizing everyone who wants to be baptized. But he says make disciples. A disciple is a learner. It's a follower. It's a commitment for life. How do you do that? Let me offer some practical ideas. The first one is that of relationships and mentoring. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, to chapter 15, and beginning at verse 37. Acts 15, verse 37. 
Let me give you the background of what has occurred. First part of Acts 13, the Holy Spirit separates Barnabas and Saul for a work. Sends them on that first missionary journey. They go to Cyprus. They go to a couple cities there. Then they go to Perga and Pamphylia. One of the assistants they had who went with them was a young man by the name of John Mark. John Mark evidently had no problem as they went through that nice island of Cyprus. But when they arrived at Perga, very likely he saw that mountain range and recognized this is going to be a hard job. I'm going to have to walk. I'm going to have to work. But whatever reason was behind John Mark's thought process, he went home. When it comes time now for them to go on their second missionary journey, that's where we pick up in Acts 15, verse 37. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. Did John Mark make a youthful mistake? Sure he did. But Barnabas said, let's take him again. Paul said, no, I don't want to take anybody with me who's not going to go to the work. On the other hand, Barnabas was willing to develop a relationship with this young man. He was willing to mentor him and to, as we might say, walk him by the hand. When you get to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful for me or to me for ministry. You think about John Mark. Here's a young man that could have just been left alone, dried up on the vine. But Barnabas said, you know what? I think we need to take him with. I need to, to mentor this young man and make somebody out of him. Are there any Barnabases here? Are there any of us who would look at a young person who's struggling who maybe has made some mistakes, and we would say, hey, we're going to make it together. We're going to make it together. Proverbs 13 and verse 20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise. You hang around good folks, and they were able to rub off on you. Now let me give you another aspect of this that you may not have thought about. That's where the value of this assembly comes in. Where we get together and we worship together. We often quote Hebrews 10 and verse 25. Let me back you up to verse 24. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. So much the more as you see the day approaching. What is he saying? He's saying when we get together, we ought to consider one another. Think about one another. To do what? 
to provoke, to encourage, to urge good works. You see, when we gather together, hopefully the sermon is encouraging, uplifting, and edifying. Hopefully our singing brings out the best in our spirits and in our hearts, praising God and teaching one another. Maybe our prayers are able to capture our minds and reflect our wishes to the Almighty. But you know, the very assembly of itself, where we can pull for one another, has a tremendous impact. In Acts 2, verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. You drop down to verse 46, and he says, So continuing daily in one accord with in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. What a great impact our fellowship can have in nurturing, encouraging, and training. A third practical aspect of that is involvement in the work. Several years ago, I was at Tim Fisher's house. I was trying to train him how to use the computer a little bit. And here is his response to me. He said, when we were in medical school, they said, see one, do one, teach one. I don't know if you know what that means is, but you see somebody do it. Next thing, you've got to do it. Third thing, you've got to teach somebody else how to do it. There's a value of participation. I am thankful we've got an eldership that encourages our young people, whether it's reading scripture, leading prayers, leading singing, or speaking on fifth Sunday nights. Hebrews 5.14 says, Who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern between good and evil. It's very hard when you're active in the Lord's work, if you're doing this and you're doing that and you're involved, to walk away from the truth. You want to take a young person, you want to take a young Christian, and you want to make him solid, nurture him. Let him be a part of the work. Let him learn by doing and being involved in the Lord's work today, not tomorrow, but today. We dare not leave new converts to fend for themselves. There are positive things that we can do not only to convert the lost, but keep the saved saved. When the writer of the book of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 9, But beloved, we're confident better things concerning you. We need to be positive. We need to be encouraging for those who have become Christians to be loyal and faithful to the day they die so they can enjoy that eternal home in heaven. If you'll take your song books out now, we're going to sing this song of invitation. Oh, how I wish that we could have a new brother or sister in Christ
someone whose heart is now tender, someone who's thought about their spiritual future, who already knows that Jesus is the Son of God, but they've not yet expressed it. They believe, and just like Peter said to the people on the day of Pentecost, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Wouldn't it be wonderful if somebody would do that tonight because you want to? Maybe we have among us those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling and you realize, I need God to forgive me and I need your help. We'll pray with you. We'll pray for you. And you'll know that your brothers and your sisters in Christ here love you and support you as we walk together. Would you come as we stand and sing?